people are trying to work towards bringing about change, but we really need people of all ethnicity because, as I say, you can talk about these things that have happened, but things are only going to change if people within white communities work with us to dismantle these oppressive unjust systems and practices and norms that have been allowed to continue. Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Welcome to this special episode of Finding Fair Health. We are focusing on health inequalities and race, but specifically the experiences of two wonderful GPs who have kindly joined me today to have a chat. Julie Duodu is a GP working at York Street Practice in Leeds. Julie is also a fellow on the Trailblazer Scheme, bringing together early career GPs working in areas of deprivation. Lucy Carter is a GP working in Hackney, an area with a huge amount of cultural diversity. Lucy has another role in training too, as a GP tutor and physician associate lecturer. In previous episodes, we have talked about the stark health inequalities that continue to be made apparent by COVID-19. As part of this, it became blindingly obvious that there was a disproportionate effect of race and ethnicity on mortality rates from COVID-19 in this country. All while this was happening, the Black Lives Matter movement has cut through all of this. There's so much going on. So amongst all of this, how are you both doing? Julie? Okay, on balance, but I think this time I just always refer to it as being very triggering at the moment. I just think there are lots of events that are happening and occurring around us that even if you might not have personally experienced something as horrific as George Floyd did, and um, it, it, it so, you know, it's a scale and it just brings back um, things that have been suppressed. So it, yeah, it's not a, a great time, especially as we're all trying to battle through the, the COVID-19 pandemic. But yeah, unbalanced, I'm okay with that to ask you. Oh, good. How about you, Lucy? I would say that I've been on a journey, which started before George Floyd um, was unlawfully murdered. Um it actually started probably last year when going to a the literary festival in Stoke Newington and uh, listening to speakers who uh, were black uh, authors. Um, and it, I've been sort of realizing where I've been coming from, thinking about my heritage. And then when George Floyd was murdered, again, it, as Julie talks about, that, that sort of triggering experience, thinking about your heritage, where you're from, what your colleagues have experienced, and suffered from. Um, it also has made me think again about my where I am from and my race or my heritage, if you want to call it, and I'm thinking quite proudly about it, but also 
I'm challenged by the fact that I am of mixed heritage. So I am both African and I am of Irish white descent as well. Um, so it's made me think the whole journey in the Black Lives Matter has made me think very much, where am I from? What can I do to make a difference in people's lives? Because I've had experiences, but other people have had much more serious experiences of racism. But I think I can think about what I can do better. So it's been a real journey for me over the last year, but particularly in the last few months. Yeah, it sounds like both of you have had, well, as Judy said, sort of almost triggering moments. It's made you both think an awful lot. Um, a bit so of an awakening. I'd say it's a bit of an awakening for me, really, of, and being proud of where I'm from, being proud of where my mother's from, but also thinking about the difficulties and challenges of not being white in this country and in other countries and what we are, uh, what people have to put up with. Um, in terms of health inequalities, in terms of the police, in terms of education, you know, so it really has made me think long and hard about it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fascinating. And have you found that it's made it easier for you to talk about this sort of stuff? Um, yeah, I would say so. I'm actually, <clears throat> I'm actually really glad this has come up because it's finally time to start being more open. I don't know what you think, Julie, but I, I feel really strongly that I'm, I want to talk about the contrast of people in higher positions who are mainly white and often men, um, and yet the workforce of a significant minority are actually of non-white, um, African, Caribbean, Indian, Pakistani, Bengali, etc. And that disparity of who are my leaders and I'm not seeing people like myself there and I want to talk about it. So this has given me an opportunity to start challenging it and thinking about the situations maybe at work and thinking whether race comes into our, my relationships with patients or my colleagues' relationships with patients. My practice has got a very high Black African and Black Caribbean population um, and I am the only... Um, now I'm not the only, but I was for a long time the only black doctor there. Um, and that's, that's really quite significant given that I work in Hackney. Um, I know there are black doctors within Hackney as a whole, but in my practice I was the only uh, black doctor. Um, so it brought its own challenges. Julie, I don't know what you think. Um, yes and no. Um, I, I think it depends on with whom. And I do feel that personally, I feel that my world has shrunk. It's shrunk with COVID and it's shrunk with the, um, uh, the re-emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. Because, you know, let's remember it started in 2016 initially that in terms of calling it the Black Lives Matter movement with the, the hashtag. But um, I just feel some people are quite kind of, if it doesn't affect them directly, and they don't want to talk about it or they don't want to relate it to um, things pertaining to the UK. It's easy to uh, look at America and criticise and condone, but not looking on our shores or even looking inside ourselves. That's, the, I find, the difficulty. And it is something I've talked about for a lot, a long time, really, um, in terms of the, uh, discrepancies or inequalities for those who are non-black within medical education. I remember mentioning it quite a bit um we're looking at signs and clinical signs like what does it look like in somebody with skin like me and my background i'm uh, british Ghanaian, and um, so i was born here my both my parents from ghana um but it's just it's an aside it's an extra it's not part of the the normal the routine to learn about things like that and so i think it's something that's it, 
it's easy to talk about with like-minded people yeah. but it's not easy to talk about amongst those who don't share your views or uh, don't want to become have those uncomfortable conversations I think I would agree with you Julia I think actually you know I've had wonderful conversations but these are people who I'm such good friends with you know it's preaching to the converted yeah um but to I, I put the challenge out in other environments and they, it's a difficult conversation and so they skirt skirt around it and don't want to talk about it because it doesn't directly affect them and they don't want to even it just is too uncomfortable to go there and I, I feel a bit disappointed about that I'm, because I, I wonder if it comes from a, a feeling of I don't want to be accused of being a racist um, and that's not what it's about but it's about just thinking again just challenging yourself we are all supposed to be reflective in how we educate ourselves yeah we all are learning we all because you know even within the black community and so somebody could be offended by me just saying black and not black african black Afro caribbean but it's it's sometimes it's almost like quick hand or shorthand or you know it, it, sometimes it's appropriate to, to just use black or not so i just think we all have the potential to potentially offend somebody and somebody it's up to somebody to choose to take that offense as well so it's a two-way thing if, if it's in a dialogue to say or you know I think you could have said it this way and then you learn from it that's that's healthy for both parties I don't I think if, if we're all in a mindset of wanting to learn and grow for the greater good that's that's all we can do and if everybody has that mindset then you know we wouldn't be in the position that we would have corrected some of these wrongs a long time ago yeah, that's so interesting. A lot of what you just, what you both just said about that kind of uncomfortable conversation and kind of getting getting to that point where you're comfortable with being uncomfortable, and some people aren't aren't comfortable with that. And I hold my hand up um, straight away and say that um, I don't think I'm quite there yet, um, and um, I really wish I was comfortable with being uncomfortable having these conversations, but I don't think I'm there yet. And one of the reasons why I was a bit nervous about doing the podcast today was was for that exact reason is that fear of saying something wrong but actually I realized that I I need to get past that and it's not good enough anymore just to be a nice person and um, and try and be nice <laughs> it's really important to actually start trying to be reflective as you say and look within ourselves I think well definitely I think the bar has been raised for everybody but especially if you're um white that it's not enough as you say to be non-racist or passive you've got to be active and actively anti-racist you know it's a new well new terminology to myself um and also i think it's it's for all of us to be active and learn there's so much we can all learn we all have our own personal lived experiences and some of us may be further on in the journey than others but we all have something we can learn from different perspectives um, from somebody who may have had a similar uh, background to you but just to read and learn about their experiences their their viewpoint or even just to try and see things from the other side this is that you know we can never can stop learning about this and growing and, and just to move forward and to make things better across the board yeah no I would absolutely agree with that this is I mean it's been a journey and it and it will continue to be a journey and I'm, I'm, I'm in a way I'm kind of glad because it just makes me you know be more proud of who I am and yeah. proud of where my mother's from be proud mm -hmm. of being African actually well, where is your mum from? 
Uganda, you know, and, and you know, she, she knows I'm having this conversation today and she, you know, Uganda suffered greatly in the 60s and 70s and we left because of Idi Amin. And I am eternally grateful to this country to take me in and I was educated here. I was brought up here, I was a baby when I came. But I'm still proud to have come from Uganda. My mother is proud to be Ugandan. Um, and it's a beautiful country and beautiful people. And it's where I can really sort of identify myself much more now, perhaps than when I was younger. It's brilliant, it's, it's interesting. Did you, when you say you can identify that much more now than when you were younger, do you feel that when you were younger there was much more pressure to assimilate? Um, so that was kind of took priority. Yeah, I was talking about this um, with a, um, a friend yesterday, and I think there is, a, a, and with my mother as well, I think there is a need when you are a refugee um, or you're a migrant worker coming to the country, um, you want to just get on with the work and you want to just fit in, you don't want trouble. And I think that, from my perspective, I don't know whether my family might agree, but I think my mother needed to move to get on to not have trouble to work hard um, you know it's an, it's a huge undertaking to move countries to move continents uh, and be a single parent and I think that takes guts and, and I think it is um, I think I'm testament to the courage that she had that I've been successful and I wouldn't be in this position today if it wasn't for my mother telling me that you can do what you need want to do because other people told me differently, um, you know, but it's huge for her to come to this country. And I, you know, you just want to fit in you want as best you can. You realize very quickly when you're little that you don't fit in, that you are, you do stick out, that you are the brown person, you know, that your hair is different to everybody else's, even if there are other quote unquote brown people, because I was in Bradford, I was brought up in Yorkshire, and very proud of being a Yorkshire person as well, and love Bradford. And it's a huge Pakistani community there, and, um, which was great for me. I didn't, you know, it just meant that there were other people who had brown skin. But of, of course, there, there were troubles because people couldn't tell the difference between different, different groups. And so we were insulted, I was insulted, had racial slurs against me from a very young age. Um, and I'm, I'm sure my mother did, but she doesn't remember it because maybe we don't want to remember those things. We just want to fit in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating, Lucy, because there, there must be an element of trying to fit in to try and get to where you want to go, but also kind of not, not wanting to forget your background. So fitting in must be kind of losing some of that heritage and losing, losing some of the, your culture and what it means to kind of be you. Definitely. I think, well, in terms of my upbringing, so as I said, mentioned earlier that I was born in the UK, but also brought up in, in uh, Yorkshire, uh, in East Yorkshire, near Hull. Uh, Yorkshire dominates. Yes. <laughs> it's nice to have a narrative of like, British women that from the north and not the south. Not that there's anything wrong with the south, but often you do get more of a southern slant in the media. Yeah, um, yeah so but where, where we were brought up, we're the only black family we're still the only black family in the town where we live or where my parents still live and um so then it that in itself has its pluses and minuses but yes there is that um pressure internally externally to um, assimilate and to but then also 
you know, not to mention just being really proud of Ghanaian heritage, but ours is a very watered down, diluted um, experience of that. Um, you know, for example, none of my siblings and I speak our own mother tongue, which is a great shame, but I'm trying to make strides to to kind of learn that now. But, you know, it's it's difficult, especially if you, you, the only way you'd hear it would be at home and not outside of your home too. Um, and obviously my parents did what they felt was best at the time. Um, but then, yes, that's a kind of personal um, uh, uh, experience that I have of that, that delicate balance between assimilating and, and maintaining your, yourself and your, your culture and your, and your heritage. Yeah, that's really interesting how similar experiences we've had. I mean, I don't, I also don't speak um, my mother's language either. Um, I speak good Yorkshire, uh, <laughs> but no, and I feel, I feel really sad about that actually. Um, but I do understand why my mum didn't speak it when she came here. Um, there are plenty of Ugandan Asians in Yorkshire when she came and of course she could have spoken Swahili or whatever. Um, but people just wanted to get on and fit in and to, you would be, you'd stick out like a sore thumb if you spoke your mother tongue. And I'm sure that you just wanted to demonstrate that you were as good at English and that you could get on with a job um, and fit into society. Yeah. But it was at my loss of not having the culture of the food, not having the culture of the language, um, which is, it's really sad actually, but you know, I totally understand it. Um, and just to say, you know, my other heritage is um, that my grandmother my, on my father's side was, uh, she was a German Jewish refugee. So there's a real mix there of people having to really assimilate into this country. Again, she lived in Leeds. Um, <laughs> And, you know, she didn't speak German um, much outside of the house. Um, again, just to fit in, because you have to. And she lived in even more difficult times than my mother did. So there's this challenge of fitting in. But um, Lucy, you're, a few moments ago, you were really, really kind about how this country has been welcoming towards you. But I know for a fact that unfortunately isn't always the case. <laughs> um, and how, how have you found attitudes towards race standing in your way? Yeah, so I think it depends how far you want to go back. I think, you know, mm -hmm. during school, sometimes um, expectations of, of, of your ability can be questioned. And although I personally didn't find that too much, because I think um, where I went to school, I was, very, I was encouraged a lot and um, achieved above expectations so and I was like I'm the oldest of my siblings so I sort of had that kind of reputation but then it's still that expectation it's still the I've for a long time thought that I have to you know get my head down do well and that maybe what I'm what I have done or what I have achieved is not quite good enough or I was offered places at medical school for example because I happen to be black but not because of achieving the grades. It's only as I've got older and realised that no, you you know you earned that yourself. And but I, I also recognise I stand on the shoulders and the opportunities that my the members of my family didn't have. My mum, my grandma, things like that. I appreciate sacrifices that were made so that I can be in the position that I am um, in. And then then just also this sense of you know grateful to have a job no you've worked hard to to get into that place to have that job you work hard you're diligent 
um, you're good at that job. So, but then, you know, it's all these kind of narratives that kind of maybe undermine achievements that perhaps you might not have if you are from a different background within the UK. Um, and a lot of the reflections I've been having of late is that you just almost having to strive more perhaps arguably than your white counterparts to get to where you want to be and that almost seems like that never stops. Yeah well, I, th I think we've touched on it you know the I feel like I have to work twice as hard I can't like some of my counterparts coming into medical school they seem to just cruise into it and have this amazing confidence um, and it just comes naturally to them and I just didn't have that I was told I couldn't do medicine because I wouldn't have the right qualifications and, and grades at A level. And as I said, my yeah, you know, you do as your mother says and, and apply I applied for both nursing and medicine because my mother used to be a nurse. Um, and I thought, well, I'll go for one of those and see what happens. And I'll, my mum said to go for the medicine. And thankfully I got in in UCL, but I really worked hard for that interview. And um, out of all the people, there are three or four people who applied to medicine. There was only two of us who actually got through and I was one of the unexpected ones. So my school really didn't encourage me at all to apply for medicine. I think they wanted me to go for, a, I don't know, maybe nursing. That would kind of fit in with what I looked like, I expect, actually. Um, you know, a caring profession, you know. I did apply to, medicine, uh, to nursing at, in Sheffield and I would have been very proud to have been a nurse if I'd been offered that. But I just, uh, having my mother's experiences of her nursing when she came to this country, she thought I should just go that one step further. Uh, and I'm glad that I did. But it really knocked my confidence when I came to medical school and realised, gosh, here I am, a comprehensive, educated Yorkshire person, non-white. Yeah, there weren't many people that looked like me at that time. And it was, you know, and I'm, I was constantly looking for other people to kind of give me the confidence, people who looked like me, but they weren't there. So you just have to kind of get your head down and try and work a bit harder at your confidence building more than anything else. Um, because people just presume that you, you won't quite get there. Lucy, you made the comment that you have to work twice as hard. And I remember my parents telling me that because um, um, there is this um, thing of being undermined and um, that can come from lots of different places but it, and it's a balance to not go around with a massive chip on your shoulder either because these things are subtle they're never especially in the UK we're all very polite and it's it's very rarely so overt and explicit it's just implied by how somebody might look at you or um, question do your patients Julie do they say to you where are you from oh yeah I've had that a few times uh, and sometimes you can tell the intent behind the question as to whether it's a genuine inquiry um, or, yeah, but yeah, I've been asked that. And it's it's weird because, and have you, I've been asked it. And yeah, all, I, all the time. Um, you know, I'm probably, and I've been in my practice now um, nearly 16 years, so oh, most wow. of the patients know me now. Um, yeah, yeah I've never been anywhere. Um, but they, you know, patients do ask, um, and I don't know how to answer it because, you know, I can put any hat on. Um, and actually, why does it matter? Because you wouldn't ask my other white colleagues no. questions. So why are you asking me? So, but sometimes I do think it comes from good intent. I think there's a need to have an affinity. I, I, I say this because my pop, the population is 
um, significantly Black Caribbean, Black African in Hackney. And I experienced from that community a need to have an affinity. Oh my goodness, it's wonderful finally to have a Black doctor working yeah. in your practice. And you understand me because you are from my culture. They, they do make an assumption that I'm Caribbean um, because my name is uh, Carter and I think that's associated with people from Barbados that so they think I'm Bayesian, um, which is okay. Um, it's absolutely fine by me. If I'd kept my name in my mother's name, um, which is Burundi, that would be, um, I wonder what they think, but they, there was a need to, where are you from? I need to have an affinity with you. So I don't take offense, just quite pleased that I've got a connection with them and that they're, they're then able to open up about a little bit more about their health, etc. But with other patients, I just sometimes wonder, what is the intent? Why are you asking where I'm from? Really, what does it matter? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I've never, apart from my elective, I've never been in an environment where, or when I go back to Ghana on holiday, I've never been in an environment where I'm in the majority. I'm, off, mm -hmm. I'm so used to being, you know, alone or a, one of a few black faces in white spaces. So yeah. usually if that question is asked, asked about me from a patient, it's from a white patient. I have been asked it sometimes from um, black or um, South Asian patients that I, I, I treat um, but it's it regardless of who asks it it's like you, I always feel you have to answer it you can't move on <laughs> and how you answer it can then almost determine your how the rest of the consult goes and you know we're GPs we haven't well if you're in mainstream general practice you've got 10 minutes or 15 but it's it's time that isn't uh, you know set aside generally yeah I just as I said I think you can always um, gauge the intent behind it so and, and I think the beauty of of it is that you can choose to answer it as you wish <laughs> it depends how you feel that day as to, to what, you, what, what you're going to say it's all truthful um, you know Ghanaian, British, British Ghanaian Yorkshire whatever you can say and then hopefully move on yeah <laughs> I would agree, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, so so interesting um that experience do you ever find race an issue at other times when dealing with your patients so for example are you ever kind of labeled as a black doctor for example and yeah and sort of singled out for that I, I think I try and get on with it and just try not to think about it. Like my, you know, I, when I was having a conversation with my, my mother yesterday, you just try and not cause trouble and just get on, not try and make a point of being the black person. What really strikes me is when the patient um, try and say, you know, I want to speak to that black receptionist or, and I'm thinking, well, which black receptionist? Because I've got several people of colour who were majority of my, the reception staff and administrative staff are non-white. So which one is it? Why are you doing what, you know, that really frustrates me that how they identify my colleagues in, by the colour of their skin, the non-white ones. The experience of being pointed out as the black doctor, yes, that has happened. And, you know, people think it's okay because I'm of mixed heritage. You know, I'm a lighter skin. Sometimes I have a bit of a guilt complex. Am I not black enough? And then people in the past, particularly when I was much younger, you're all right. But those, you know, and they'll be insulting about various different ethnic groups. 
in front of me and think that I'm okay to kind of listen to that because I have some white in me. And I just, and I don't know where to go with that. And that comes from patients, it comes from uh, friends at school and, uh, you know, in, outside of the workplace. I don't know if, Julie, if you've experienced that, where people just have a conversation about other ethnic groups and think, yeah. oh, you're all right. Because you're a professional, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't like black people, but you're all right. Well, yeah, definitely. And when you were just um, relaying that, um, story it just made me think of a home visit so I'm, I'm a black woman um, dark-skinned black woman and I remember doing a home visit once and it was a bizarre situation but a patient was like oh you're okay you're not Indian and I just thought what do you mean and having to and if you say like to say is to say oh you know, you've got too many Indian doctors and I just I did actually say look because it's difficult you're in someone's home a family all around and I just said I don't know what you mean by that, but if those Indian doctors didn't come over, you wouldn't have any doctors at all. And they're very good, very capable. And it makes you think, if you're saying that about Indian doctors to my face, what are you going to say about me? And yeah, it's very uncomfortable. And we often, as I, I don't know if you've come across it, and the initial question was, do you mind being called a black doctor? No, because I'm black and proud, but it depends again on the kind of uh, inference that's made by the person saying that. And... Um, you know, I, one practice I worked at, there was another black doctor. I only took offence because they thought a patient thought they'd seen me when they'd seen the other black female doctor, and she was pregnant and about two or three shades lighter than me. And it's like that, you know, we're not all the same. <laughs> we don't all look the same, and you know, and I'm not pregnant. <laughs> um, um, uh, so yeah, it, it, to to have to treat people who are quite open in sharing, kind of bigoted views or I don't know in this time I've seen I'm in a, a part of a, a group called black women in health and on the chat somebody was saying you know what would you do I've just spoken to somebody who um because often we're you know we're now doing a lot more remote consulting and they, this person has said they don't want to speak to me because I'm a black doctor what, what what would you do they want to speak to somebody who can speak better English <laughs> And it's like, if you could understand me to go through the initial parts of, you know, patient identification and then to say that, it's like, you know, we're, we're so often duty bound to put the patient first, even if they've been blatantly racist or offensive. And I think that needs to change that, you know, practice kind of attitudes and tolerance to that kind of behavior has to be addressed because that's unacceptable, really. But yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, Julie. And I, we, I was on an educational uh, webinar um, last week and this subject of how would you treat somebody who refused to be treated by the, that black doctor? Um, you know, I think what's happened in the past and I think may still carry on is, you know, let's just get them out of the building. Let's just do what they want because we want a quiet life. So we'll give them the white doctor. And it's always frustrated me because, you know, it's not necessarily just me, but my colleagues have experienced this. And I'm thinking, well, look at all the staff that are in the NHS. You know, you can't pick and choose. You pick, these people are highly qualified. Nurses, doctors, porters, whatever. They've worked hard. They're here to help. Yeah. So if you choose and you have capacity to say, I don't want to be treated by that person, then why should you be treated by anybody? But my, so it was interesting that one of my colleagues had said, 
but isn't this a G, you know, if you refuse to treat, is this a GMC issue? And I would be interested to have a conversation with the GMC about this because of course patients must come first. We must do our best. But if the patient makes an unwise decision, in my opinion, and are offensive against my, my ethnicity, you know, it's not my capacity as a doctor, but it's just the color of my skin. Then how can you, how can I have every right to say, well, I can't, if you choose not to be treated by the person who is available to treat you, you are making an unwise choice. You will have to go somewhere else for your treatment, but we're not going to offer you a white doctor just to please you. And that felt very uncomfortable, it seemed, for some people that I was having a conversation with. And that's what I mean about it's really important to start opening up. I don't know what you think, Rachel, because it does feel uncomfortable, that situation. But we in the medical education really need to talk with our medical students, our PA students, the dental students. We're all going to face this situation at some point. I mean, I just feel very strongly about this, as you probably can tell. Yeah. <laughs> I completely agree and I think these conversations need to happen and that, that the uncomfortableness of the silence the oh it's a GMC issue maybe we should you know that is just giving way to racist attitudes yeah it's challenging the status quo because the status quo has been okay so you've had this and then you then as the you know for the example the scenario I gave of somebody's selling you I don't want to speak to you get somebody white to speak to me then it's become the onus is on you in terms of making sure you're providing patient care to rebook that patient with somebody if that's possible I mean in some places it might not be um so yeah I, I think that's because that's been kind of the standard and the norm that needs to be challenged and that's the the discomfort I think too much we reward bad behavior so if people are used to that behavior being rewarded then they'll behave like that if they if if it, if it stops being the norm that you'll bend over backwards to acquiesce to such a reasonable request then yeah that's where I would expect leadership in whether it's the NHS trust or whether it be in a GP practice for the partners or whatever but I would expect a unified stance on this we say in the NHS that you know you cannot insult the staff you cannot be aggressive abusive abusive still you know if you are have a bigoted attitude and you openly declare that because you, and you don't want to receive treatment because of the color of the person's skin. That is a bigoted attitude. Surely the uh, executive, the trust, the leadership, the management need to stand behind that doctor, nurse, whoever, and, sta- and, and, and back them up and say, well, here they are. They're your person to be treated. They have capacity and capability to do their job. If you choose not to take it, you, you don't have to be in this hospital or this GP practice. Yeah, and leadership, I think leadership is a really important point you make there, Lucy, because actually I do wonder, are there particular issues around taking on leadership roles for you both? So do you, do you think about the kind of attitudes to race within the organisations and the things that you're thinking about taking on? Yes, I think you, you hope that um, an organisation's ideals align with yours and you perhaps look and reflect on, the, uh, for example, the panel that might be interviewing you. So yeah, it's definitely a consideration. But then often I'm so used to being a lone black face in a white space. So although it's not always, I don't know if I'm comfortable, I'm just used to it. And um, so if if, some, if a place didn't appear to be, a place where it didn't appear to be too diverse, that in itself wouldn't put me off applying there. But then I know that there may be kind of unique, unique challenges, but then the fact that the 
they you know, they've hired me shows that perhaps they want to address that kind of imbalance. I think it depends on where you work and whether you're it's a place where it reflects the kind of population it's it's serving as well. Yeah, I would agree. I think I think Simon Stevens is um, on the Royal College of Physicians um, mm-hmm. webinar, which was last week or the week before. I think he's saying that you know there really does need to be leadership and representation. Um, you know, I think he's I think it's nineteen percent of the uh, NHS staff are people of colour, and yet there aren't many leaders. Um, less than four percent, I can't remember, but certainly a very small percentage of the top level. Um, executives are, are people of colour and that's a shame and he wants to change that um, and when you're into he's interviewing and I think in any interview situations you need you do need to be representative of the people yeah. that we're bringing in so when we're interviewing for the students for the physicians associate program it's really important it was discussed that to make sure that the people who are interviewing are a broad range of people because the students are a real broad range uh, as well in terms of ethnicities um, and I think that really helps them uh, as students coming into a, an environment to see people in leadership positions and think I can be like that. Representation really does matter and it, it matters across the board and you know we mentioned about um, people starting at the start of the careers it's it's important if you're you know in the middle t- towards the end at my place of work prior to COVID, we had, um, you know, you routine BLS training and the trainer was a black woman. And for me, I remember going home and telling my sister, and it was just, I was in awe. Like she's a, br- a brilliant trainer. I've, but in all my years, I've never had BLS training from a black trainer. Mm-hmm. And it, it made an impact on me. It, it's, it's really important for across the board really is definitely yeah role models and people who you can align with are really important whether that's whether you're at school or even now and um, I think it's really important I kind of want to move on and talk a little bit about the effect on patients here so what challenges do you see for your your black patients and how do you think race um contributes to health inequalities for your patients Lucy what do you think and what do you see in Hackney well let's let's cut to the chase let's talk about COVID um I was um on a run back from um, near the river and there's a memorial in Clapton, um, which is part of Hackney, to the people of Hackney that have died from COVID. And uh, lots of the names were of non-white people, including um, a a consultant from our local hospital and a nurse from our hospital and another healthcare assistant. um, You know, and it really struck me, that picture that everybody's seen uh, of, of the healthcare workers who died from COVID-19, how they are non-white. This is the same for the patient population, you know, um, that those who are non-white are dying more, more likely to die from or end up in hospital from COVID-19. And it's, and I just wonder, you know, it was so striking, that, that image. And I, and I worry, my patients are worried about themselves for COVID-19 now. They're very afraid to get out. But even before then, you know, they're already suffering, if that's the right word, I'm not sure it is, but they already have conditions such as, you know, childhood obesity is much higher in the, in the African children um, in Hackney. Um, and, and, you know, if we're starting out 
overweight at the age of five and then ending up at the age of 11 when we leave primary school and we're even more overweight. You know, Hackney has got the highest childhood obesity rates in this country, I think. And I know that it's a particular problem for our black population, for some of the children, not all of them, but some of them. And I don't, I want to know why, because already we've got an issue there. Obesity, we know, is a problem for COVID when you're older. Um, but also, if you're overweight and you're obese, you know, you're more prone to other conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, and a premature death. And the biggest problem for people of colour and people, black people in particular, in Hackney is the mental health issues. You're labelled more likely to have a mental health problem, particularly a significant mental health problem. You're more likely to be in hospital. You're more likely to have been sectioned. You know, it, it's, it's devastating if you get a diagnosis of psychosis. Um, it, you know, you just, it, it's, it's devastating anyway. But the, if you look on the wards of who has actually got that diagnosis and who's been sectioned, the majority of people on the wards are non-white. And a lot of them are black African or black Caribbean, certainly in Hackney. I don't know, Julie, what it's like in Leeds, but... All, all very similar. And I just think our, our patients face um, inequalities, even just because of how, how we're trained as um, medics and, and nurses. You know, certain conditions um, aren't recognised as quick because everyone's been taught towards the kind of white norm everything in mental medical school I'm sure within nursing is you know you're given the white norm, white figures white norms this is what a rash looks like so then if those who are you're going to for help don't recognize things quickly you're going to be presenting late or receive yeah. treatment later than your white counterpart so yeah. that has to be addressed and you know there's a brilliant um because uh, I, 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 I admire this generation because uh, this generation of young people, they, they're more proactive. They, they're used to spinning more plates. You know, when I was at school, I just wanted to get my exams. But a lot of um, young people today do the exams and have a few businesses on the side as well. But there's a, um, a second year medical student from um, St. George's yeah, yeah, that's University right. of London. Yeah. He's put together this Mind the Gap handbook, which I'm trying to get my hands on, but it's, I think it's going to be used within their curriculum and maybe shared with other medical schools, but hasn't yet been published widely. But it needs to be because we need to catch up on this deficit of information. So as I'm saying, you know, our patients, there's certain conditions that are not recognised, therefore they're not treated. So then people have more, suffer with more morbidities or even it could lead to mortalities. There's a restriction with access, although that perhaps might be arguably widened, but it depends because there's a lot of, digital exclusion as well if you've got the technology you've access has been increased but if you haven't got access to a kind of smartphones things like in the internet then arguably access is very restricted even if english is your first language and if it's not then you've got further barriers and again as we saw with covid making sure that appropriate information was disseminated in, in languages that people could understand was an afterthought and usually um, initially addressed by third sector or volunteers before it was kind of a national kind of coordinated government well I don't know if there was a coordinated government response but all of those vital messages when people were excluded from getting the memo because it was just in English as a you know again a default not even thinking that there were lots of people that needed to have that message but it couldn't reach and then as you say with mental health that's massive that's huge and it's so important to have if you're going I think to recognize the need to have practitioners working within mental health that are representative of 
the population that they're serving. Um, so you need to have a more diverse offering because there's some things that are just, <laughs> to say it's cultural is very it's a simplification. I think it's very, people come with mental health issues. There are certain things they don't want to explain the relevance of. You have a limited amount of time. It's, you just want things to be as a given and then to move on from that and then get them to help. And I think, you know, you mentioned with mental health, disproportionate of um, black men have uh, 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 given certain diagnoses. I think if you're a black man, just like them and black woman, if I have an issue, I'd rather speak to another black woman. I'd feel more comfortable because I wouldn't have to censor myself as much. I wouldn't have to um, explain too much about the minutiae of, of certain things, just of how things are within my culture I can just get down to the nitty gritty of how things are affecting me. So likewise, I think black men should be, have that opportunity to sit down with a practitioner that reflects them um, and that's uh, you know I mean mental health is massively under a resource uh, underfunded and just across the board we need more people of all ethnicities but I think that's something that needs to be proactively sought out. Yeah no I absolutely agree. I feel very strongly that young black men need they need to they need to see a person who reflects them when they're so that they're able to open up whether it's about health or social issues educational issues um you know it's just so important to have representation and they're not getting it at the moment oh. unfortunately they're being tarred with it. it's all their fault it's their community's fault you know they're over feminized uh, in the way that they've been brought up because they're a single often from a single parent family and there's not enough male strong male role models but but kind of putting the blame on 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 the on the young black men sure. yeah. rather than thinking, let's look wider let's think why are their fathers around perhaps that there are issues going on there that we need to address rather than blaming the child and blaming the mother Fascinating, and I completely agree. We, we've, we've kind of interwoven loads of the solutions to all of this into a lot of the discussions we've been having. So we've been talking about sort of leadership, representation, access, and the role as the, the healthcare professional within all of this. But we've also kind of talked about talking about this and looking within ourselves. Are there, are there other things that you think we need to do to move forward with this? I think there are. I think... Um, and and starting to engage in conversation firstly acknowledging that acknowledging that there is a discrepancy acknowledging that there there are health inequalities that are um experienced by people um of different ethnicities that you know as i said your access to services is completely different and uh, and you can have completely different experiences that needs to be addressed and also to open up spaces for practitioners to in a safe place but in a place of learning and growth to explore their own biases whether they're conscious or unconscious and the reason why i say that is because we all do have them we're just you know it's how we're wired you make presumptions about people but if your presumptions are based on the color of someone's skin especially if you're in a position of authority and in a position of trying to help somebody then you're, if they're misguided, misplaced, then as I say, it can have impact on somebody's 
health experience or even on their life um it's going to be difficult it's going to be uncomfortable it's going to be challenging but we really have to look at the the biases that exist because a bias a bias in me if it's going to harm another person has to be rooted out and and eliminated we've got to think a bit differently to try and reduce these health inequalities just by you know listening to the people who are actually suffering um, and 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 as you say you know making sure that we're as aware as we possibly can of any prejudice and bias that we have within us i mean the unconscious bias training as i said before really does need to happen and medical education has got a responsibility to look at its um, curriculum and anywhere it feels that it could improve on and the word the term is decolonize uh, the curriculum um, it needs to happen so that the way that we present ourselves as doctors nurses dentists etc we can do better if we have a, a, a more broader education so we have a better understanding for our patients that we're looking after. There was a great poster in the Hackney of the uh, a gentleman who suffered from prostate cancer who was a mechanic in Hackney. Oh yeah, he's... You know him. And um, I was, I'm desperate to have him come and talk to my medical students because I think he's such a good advocate yeah. for standing up uh, for black men who are at much higher risk of prostate cancer but in a way that is educational, that is positive, and, and you know, I could see that other men would really relate to him. Yeah. Yet to that, but I will, because I think that that's what people need, what, what our patients need. I need it as an edu as an educationalist. We need people, we need patient experts, and somebody like that who understands it from the from the heart. Um, I thought he was brilliant. And you say the the relatability and how he can reach out. He has a greater reach to um the, the the target population to get that message out and you know he did loads of initiatives i think basically you say you'd have a free mot if he'd gone to get your prostate which right. <laughs> <laughs> on his own volition but um yeah and just and just he has done so much for um broadening the conversation amongst his peers and that's who it needs to be around and and yeah and i think he it was it was he still is a great ambassador for um, prostate uk and um does a lot to increase or raise awareness yeah definitely um i'll come back to the issue of leadership and of representation at the top and that the nhs really has to because i think if you've got representation at the top people like myself and julie and the people coming through medical school and through nursing training they see people that look like them who can achieve great things they will understand their population better i'm hoping and do better things. I am not seeing enough people who are not white and male. And that's not to say that white males are not capable of doing their job, but I just want to see a breadth of people at the top who have a lived experience of what's perhaps of what's happening on the ground and so can make changes that are going to make a difference to our population. Yeah, you know, definitely. And you're right, that, that representation, it's not just important for us, it's important for everybody to see, because if you, um, as a, a, a white person, can see that there's some dean leadership who's black or Asian and Southeast Asian, it, there's so many things that subconsciously and subliminally, mm -hmm. if you've seen that, you know it can be done, so you're more likely to encourage that within your own organisation. So it trickles down. I know it's a different country, but some people made the point that when Obama was president there was a generation of children that didn't know that there wasn't anything other than a black president because that was their norm 
because that's what they knew. That's, so that's going to be so powerful for them, hopefully, moving forward, because they've seen that it's not been a kind of an impossible dream or that was the reality. Can you imagine what that would be like if we had a black prime minister? I was just going to say this thing. I, I can't, you know, and yet, and yet, and I just, I'm sorry to bring this, but, you know, our black MPs are suffering so much and yet they're having to do, they're trying very hard to do really good things. And I know a lot of them are in the Labour Party, but they're not all, but they should not have to suffer from racism and it be sort of tolerated that, you know, an MP has recently had to close her office in Brent because of the abuse and the bricks through the window you know, this should not happen. These are the people at the top. And so to say this is not a racist country, that is a lie because these things are happening to her. They're happening to my MP. They're happening to my neighbouring MP in Tottenham every day. And these are the people trying to make a difference for us. You know, I, I just feel so strongly about it. Completely agree. Um, thank you. Um, so we're moving forward. So we, we've got all these solutions and we t- we, we've talked about loads, but how do, how do we just keep this going? Because um, one of the things about the podcast that um, I was a bit worried about was kind of riding a, riding a bit of a wave, kind of thinking, right, well, this is a topical issue. I'm going to do a podcast about it. And actually, I didn't want that to be the case because this has been an important issue from a health inequality point of view forever so actually this isn't just important now it's important going forward so how do we make sure this isn't just a wave and the conversation keeps going be intentional i know that this isn't a kind of riding a wave thing for you it's all part of you know you're very passionate about health inequalities and it's important to make the distinction that there are some people that suffer not just because of the socioeconomic status but because of the their ethnicity um, and but just to, if you if you ignore it if you ignore something how are you going to address it so it's about acknowledging it keeping the conversation going um, wherever it feels appropriate but just being intentional about doing so because yes at the minute it's very on trend and well actually you know it's not apparently it's not trending in social media as it was maybe two or three weeks ago but so we need to just keep challenging keep in people's consciousness until we see the improvements that that need to be made because these things the thing is the systems we were operating they were designed centuries ago and it's going to take time to dismantle them because for a lot of people if you're not adversely affected or directly affected it might not be in your own personal interest to to see these things change to change the status quo so there's a lot of work to be done to even get some people to acknowledge that there is an issue so by keeping it in the consciousness and the narrative, then it makes people think. And I do think it's really powerful. As I said, there's lots of terms that are coming up these days. Allyship uh, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement is so powerful because, you know, some people might not like what I'm going to say, but white people listen to white people. A lot of these issues are not new. People within the black community and other ethnic minorities, I mean, there are different, it's, it's important to distinguish. We all have different issues within different communities not to lump them all together but lots of these issues that pertain to racism are not new um it's just maybe the fact that they're being filmed and and broadcast you know the awful murder of george floyd was was became shared at a time when the world had stood still so there was more attention to that but sadly even even though that happened in the horrors and the response to that um like the mass response around the world to try and you know just to say this has to stop 
there the are hundreds of people who've suffered similar fate since then, um, sadly. But people are trying to work towards bringing about change, but we really need people of all ethnicities because as I say, time immemorial within our community, the black community, you can talk about these things that have happened, but things are only going to change if people within white communities work with us to dismantle these oppressive, unjust systems and practices and norms that have been allowed to continue. So that is so it's really vitally important that you have it on your platform. I think you summed it up really nicely, Julie. I would absolutely agree, you know. We need our allies and it's time for us to stand back and for the white people to come forward and to say what needs to be said and to make those changes because as as julie says white people listen to white people but you know we have lots of allies lots of people people are trying to you know our our colleagues like yourself rachel are doing great things and we need more of you um but it's i i, I put it back to you and your colleagues who are white to start keep the conversation going it shouldn't always have to come from the likes of julia and myself it, it has to come from you and 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 your colleagues who are white because your views are important and because you're in a powerful position to do something different that is um really really interesting and i am um, yeah i'll do my best <laughs> not all on your shoulders let no, me just it's not it's a collective <laughs> no, no, it's thing not. i mean in this time um i have been quite apprehensive about mixing even when the the government and i'm using air quotes say that you know we can it can do x y and z because the logic doesn't seem to apply but i have battled with kind of trying to have a healthy respect for this covid19 pandemic but then also with protests and um i've felt that this is bigger than me and gone to a couple of the events that were organized in leeds which were all incredibly um they were well organized peaceful um, and i learned a lot and um one of them my sister and i were invited to speak at which i've never done before which was just an, um, a, an incredible experience to be around like-minded people and a sea of faces that are of all different shades that's that's the key it's, it's got to be collaborative it can't because for too long it's just been one one group and but things have been you know don't get me wrong things have progress you wouldn't have had the racial inequality laws if people didn't boycott in um, Bristol uh, in the 60s and things like that you know the, it wasn't law before then for, to not racially discriminate against people in the workplace I, I benefit from that that legislation but there's still more to be done but you can't just have it it, it needs to be collaborative now and, and I think it, it, it is and um, yeah it's just it's, it's got to be a priority because it's an emergency we can't just keep plodding along in, in the way that we have and, and more people be um, face morbidity and mortality because of because of it because that, that is a reality in the times of the pandemic you know uh, we are not all equal and we cannot all work from home and if we think about the ethnic groups who are not able to work at home and who are on the front line you know um, who are going to put themselves at risk if there's a second wave, a lot of them will be non-white. And so we've got to, you know, those of us who are in power, who have, most of them happen to be white, need to think about from a, a race and an ethnic pop, uh, perspective to think how can we protect our population, particularly those people on the front line um, who are not white, who may be more at risk of COVID, for example. 
there's a lot of work to be done, but it, we, are, we, we are making great strides. At least we're having this conversation. You know, I couldn't have imagined it even five years ago. So I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you very much for today. It's been, it's been really good. No, well, thank you both. Um, if anything's come out of this for me, is that I want to keep talking to you both about this. Um, just to finish, I always finish with two questions. So one, one learning resource that you would recommend to someone else um, listening to this. Um, it's probably someone early in their career if they want to learn more. So something that's really, maybe something that's really got you over the last few weeks. And then um, your one magic genie wish to try and tackle health inequalities. And so, yeah, if, if that's okay from both of you, and then we will finish up. Oh, well, I've got my pile of books right next to me. <laughs> I was warned, I was warned that, that this might happen. So I don't know if you're, any of you are reading this. But yeah, I've just finished that. The book is uh, Afua Hirsch, and it's called Brit-ish. And it's on race, identity and belonging. And it's a, it's a fantastic book. And I really identify with her because she's of mixed heritage herself. So I opened the book and I was like, I can't put it down because... What she's going through, her questions that she asks of herself and of other people, makes perfect sense to me. Not quite fitting in, not quite belonging, but just thinking about the perspective of race as well and the conversation. She's excellent in her writing and I would highly recommend it, definitely. And the only other one, and I know that we've talked a lot about it, but the Robin DiAngelo White Fragility book, um, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. This I recommend to all my white friends and they are overwhelmed when they read it and it is a fantastic book just it, i just look i read it and i went i whooped with joy going this woman is saying everything that i've wanted to say for years <laughs> it's brilliant my magic genie wishes to have a better education for young black men that's really what i want i want them to be mentored and you know so my wish is that less young black men in gangs and more young men as a head of nhs that's what i want Fantastic, thank you. And Julie? They're brilliant books. I've just finished reading uh, a few of Hirsch's book, brilliant. Um, and I have that, uh, the White Fragility book to, to read. But um, I would also, similar to the F.U. Hirsch book, Akala's Natives is brilliant. Very similar themes, but from a black male perspective. And but also, it, 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 it's autobiographical, but also puts race it really centers everything it puts the historical context into how things are as they are in britain at the moment it's very thought-provoking and informative and there's a lot to be done to break down this status quo that has been built up over centuries and then if i can add another book superior by angelus Hussaini. um i've just started reading it, it to dispel this kind of myth of white superiority which is where racism has its roots so yeah that's a brilliant resource and if I could just mention one more there's a uh, if you just want to listen to something um there's a TED talk by uh, Melody Hobson uh, talking about colour could being the difference between colour blind and colour brave which is what we need to be because for too long if you're colour blind that's how things just to, are allowed to be but if you actually are brave enough to talk about colour and embrace it the difference but that you know that's a really good brilliant TED talk as a foundation and, and uh, can lead to a lot of interesting conversation with different people and my genie wish in a particular pertaining to health inequalities is just for that that we stop teaching whether it's medics nurses paramedics whatever that we we, we stop teaching about non-white as, as a kind of additional extra that you'll learn later if we're teaching something teach all the variations at the same time 
let's let's default from the white standard because we live in an increasingly global um, multicultural society wherever you are in the world it's, it, everywhere is becoming more mixed and it's beautiful so we need to be able to treat the people that we're going to come across so if we all treat it as standard then we're all going to be better for it um thank you julie it is beautiful and thank you um i'm going to finish it there thank you both for your honesty your exploration your patience in me in trying to work some of this stuff out and your courage in sharing your experiences i really really enjoyed talking to you both today <laughs> i look forward to continue you've enjoyed it thank you thank you all for listening you will be able to find further episodes on the fair health website if you haven't been on there already please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealthUK or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.